Hi, and welcome to the Religion and Story podcast with your hosts, Stephen, Daniel, and Michael Crouch. On this podcast, we are going to be talking about the doctrine of the Trinity. What is it? How did the theology of the Trinity come about? And how is it practical for life today? As well as what are some heresies that have developed over the past 2,000 years? So to begin, Daniel is going to be outlining some of those heresies. Daniel? Yeah, so understanding the Trinity can be a pretty difficult task, especially if you're dealing with a doctrine when boiled down is stating that God is both one and three, uh, which is obviously an oxymoron, then clearly you're going to have some difficulties logically making sense of everything. So throughout the 2,000 years of Christian history, there have been a lot of heresies. Uh, There have been uh, many uh, beliefs that people didn't even realize were heresies. But I'm going to mention just like three, three of the big ones that popped up pretty quickly. Well, the first one, actually, uh, many people uh, would say isn't even really an issue, that no one believes it. Because we come from Judaism, Christians uh, are getting their religious heritage from Judaism, who are staunch monotheists, uh, tritheism, the first heresy, was never really an option. Most people just quickly off the bat knew, hey, we don't believe in three gods, and we completely reject that. And that was rarely an issue for Christians. But then the first big heresy to actually develop in history was by a guy named Arius, and it's called Arianism, sometimes called subordinationism. And it's the idea that the members of the Trinity are not equal. It's the idea that... Um, Specifically, that Jesus was not full divinity like God the Father, that he was some sort of perhaps uh, demigod um, who is special and and great, um, greater than any human, but was not on the same level as God the Father. The church quickly came together uh, as actually the first ecumenical council, the Council of Nicaea, and they said that we have to reject this, that that is not the God that we serve and worship, and that is not true about Jesus Christ, uh, our Lord and Messiah. He is not, um, he is not on a different level from the God the Father. He is um, on the same level and is equal with the Father. And then the third and probably the most tempting heresy, even to this day, in fact, I I would imagine that probably some of our listeners even Uh, identify with this belief is called modalism, or sometimes it's called Sabellianism after uh, Sibelius, the first guy to really advocate it. Modalism is the idea that there is one God um, and that God reveals himself in three different ways. Um, Sometimes it's said he has three different faces or three different masks that he has, the the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. In fact, Sibelius even went further and said that he has the three different faces of God are um, distinct to three different times. He first revealed himself as the Father in the Old Testament, then for a short time as the Son, and then as the Spirit in um, in the Church, and even up to today. But it's all it's all the same uh, God, just revealing Himself in three different ways, and that has been a very influential heresy throughout the history of the Church. Guys, what are y'all's thoughts on that? Now, modalism definitely seems very popular uh, with uh, people in different church or uh, religious circles. Uh, why exactly, uh, or what does the scripture say that would contradict what modalism uh, seems to support? 
Uh, well, Stephen, I think it's probably interesting to note that I, I took a class on uh, Christology and the Trinity in Harding at Harding, and I actually said that had that same question my uh, during that class. I asked that of the professor. I said modalism actually sounds pretty uh, accurate. What's wrong with that? Um, so basically, there are two things to say about modalism. One is it has some logical problems when you look at events like. Uh, the baptism of Jesus, or more specifically, uh, Jesus praying to the Father. It doesn't really make much sense for him to be praying to himself. Uh, hey, God, it's me, you. It just, just doesn't make any sense. Um, the other thing that needs to be said, though, this isn't really a logical flaw with modalism, but it really uh, dampens our idea of God. when, Because if we reject modalism, and we have three distinct centers of consciousness in the Godhead. We have a, a person, Father, a person, Son, a person, Spirit, all God. Then we have this internal community in God. Um, God himself is community. He is uh, love. Um, you can't love if it's just you. That's uh, the greatest narcissist that's ever been. But if you have other right. persons within the Trinity you can actively love another. And God has loved for all eternity if we have that. With modalism, we don't have that virtue of God. Yeah, and it's also important to note all the different uses for the word spirit that we find in the Bible and the distinct one that we find used for the Holy Spirit. Uh, I think I've heard before that there's four different types of uses for the word spirit that we find in the Bible. And one that I think might be worth discussing, maybe at a, another time, uh, when Jesus says, into thy hands I commit my spirit, when he, uh, I guess his last words on the cross. Um, and so how can we read into that? I mean, is that something that would imply that Jesus had a a soul um, uh and I think that there, that is something that we need to, you know, that does have some value in de determining the actual manifestation of the Son as Jesus Christ. Um, partially, uh, my first inclination would be to think, well, he was baptized. Uh, and f did that have anything to do that he had a soul present in him and it was part of the, uh, the Father's plan for him? So... Um... A couple things, Stephen. Uh, one thing worth mentioning is that in the Greek, they don't actually capitalize words. So it's hard to tell um, when a spirit is referring to an individual spirit, so Jesus saying, I commit my spirit, his own spirit, or uh, if it's capital spirit, the Holy Spirit, he's committing the Holy Spirit, um, which might you might make the case for because um, they're all one. Luckily for us, most translators for English Bibles have made that decision for us and are trying to help us out, and we can usually trust them in that way. I just want to first uh, acknowledge that ambiguity. Uh, I was going to ask, and you'll have to forgive me because I'm one and a half weeks into taking a, a Greek course, so I've knocked out the alphabet and that's about it. <laughs> but I do know from doing the alphabet there are capital letters in Greek. You said that they don't capitalize their words for, so what what exactly are they using the capital letters for? And I know that there's also capital letters because I've driven by fraternity houses, and they have them <laughs> up there too. Um, I'm not entirely sure, and so my, my Greek professors might be angry with me. I want to say 
those are letters from different eras, like Greek for at some point, like so during the New Testament, they're only using the lowercase, but at a different time, Greek is using uppercase. I don't know. No, please, no one quote me on that. That's none of it's true. I don't even know. So, I know nothing about Greek. Um, and one of my professors uh, during my master's degree at Pepperdine, uh, Victor Davis Hansen, taught classical Greek at, uh, at a university out in California. And when I told him that uh, that my grandfather taught Koine Greek, he just laughed at me and said, oh, that, that inferior Greek. So uh, <laughs> to, to the rest of the world, the, the Bible is a stumbling block, even in the language that it uses. <laughs> I do know for a fact that when, uh, is it the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, when they right. wrote out Yahweh with Y-H, uh, sorry, uh, Y-W-H, W-H. yeah, they God, wrote it in all capitals. God. Okay. So yeah, I didn't even know that. So, I mean, just go Google it, someone, and figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> We're so informative. Um, all right, going back to Stephen's question, what is Jesus doing there with the Spirit? Yeah, like you said, I think that may be a topic for a whole uh, another discussion on just Christology. But it's probably worth saying that, um, yeah, we think that Jesus is the does have um, within him. Uh, the the son the spirit of the son the soul of the son i'm not sure how you're supposed to say that but he is the son of god the son has existed for all eternity while jesus himself had a temporal he began when he was born jesus being the physical human manifestation of the son and of god um that is important because i can't remember so someone else yeah, I was about to ask, what exactly was the purpose of having the Son or the, the Spirit uh, in existence uh, before creation? So, I mean, we, we did talk about sort of the, the economic uh, or the imminent relationship of the Trinity, that it's important to have that community where they can have love. Um, and so you have to have these other persons within the Godhead. So um, I'll point out another thing that's important about the spirit of the sun, uh, the, the essence of the sun, if you will, being eternal. Uh, think of it this way. Um, if God gave you powers, what powers could he give you that would make you, uh, that would still allow him to be God and not you? One of those is that God is not created. God is the creator. Um, we, even if he gave us the power to create other things, we are still created. And so it's important that any part of God, whether it be Father, Son, or Spirit, is eternal. Because otherwise, uh, they would not be co-equal if one of them had created the other. Now that said, there is still submission within the Trinity. Um, And I I think the practical uh, lesson here is that um, it is possible, not contradictory, but it is possible to have submission within unity. For example, uh, a godly marriage is, an, is, a, is a marriage of two equals, yet there's submission within marriage. Uh, within a congregation, we are, all, uh, we are all part of the body of Christ, yet we submit 
to elders. We submit to our leaders within the congregation. Um, part of the original design of healthy relationship from the beginning was co-equal co equality, but submission within that equality. Yeah, Michael, I think that's exactly right. And that's a huge uh, thing to understand about the Trinity, that uh, ontologically, in their very being, the members of the Trinity are equal. They're, they have inherent equal worth. But in their economic roles, um, the, the Father, his role is to lead, to administer the divine plan, uh, while the Son's role is to submit and to, by his submission, redeem humanity. That is their rules. That's why they have those titles. I'm sure not for all eternity that the God was referring to himself as Father, Son, and Spirit in English or in Greek. But the reason we have given them those names is because we are describing their, their roles, what they do. And one of them has a fatherly leading role, and the other one has a submissive son role. Well, that and it's very clear in how worship is to be conducted, that we're worshiping the Father. Uh, we pray through the Son, and uh, the, the Spirit is there to guide us where? Uh, closer to the Father. And so everything everything is focused on God the Father, uh, the Creator. Uh, I was also going to ask, do you think that uh, the Son or the Spirit um, have any part in being a Creator or part of creation? Yeah, so um, we've talked a little bit about like the different roles of the Trinity. Uh, sometimes it's said that uh, the, the Father is the Creator and Sustainer, that the Son is the Revealer and Redeemer, and that the Spirit is the power of the Godhead, the manifestation of that power. Um, but it's important to remember, even though they have their distinct roles, as a unified community, they're also involved in each other's roles. So, uh, Stephen, you just uh, mentioned maybe the biggest one, which is prayer, um, that we believe that the members of the Trinity are acting together in the um, in the ritual of prayer, that they are all combined doing something. It's not just one member who is doing everything uh, in create, but also in creation. We think that's also the case. We look at the first two verses of Genesis, though we know that the, the Old Testament doesn't have a concept of these three members of the Trinity. We can already see glimpses of it in the first two verses of the Bible, um, where we see God... Uh, speaking and the word um, who John John chapter 1 identifies with the son and we see the spirit hovering over the deep we see already in the beginning the power and the creator and the revealer of and within the trinity making the cosmos and so you you brought up John chapter 1 uh, is it safe to say that uh, the word of God, anytime God is create, uh, sorry, speaking to his people, that Jesus is present in those situations. Uh, I know that there's examples that we see uh, the presence of Jesus uh, in the Old Testament. And um, well, well, let me, well, I'll just throw it over to you guys. What do you guys think? Is that something that would be safe to say that Jesus is present in those events? I, I would say so. You know, it's, Daniel, it's funny that you only bring up the first two verses of Genesis chapter one, uh, quoting my favorite heretic, uh, Rob Bell. Um, he, he he reminds us that, in fact, the entire Trinity appears in the first three verses. 
Verse 1 is God the Father creating the heavens and the earth. Verse 2, we see the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. And then in verse 3, God speaks, let there be light. Um, from the very beginning, uh, the Word of God was was moving. So, so do you think that Christ is this uh, this spoken word, this power that is creating the world at, at this point? Uh, do you think any physical uh, interaction between God and uh, and this uh, created world? Do you think that is God uh, working through the Son? So. I would say yes. Now, I don't want to deprive God the Father of a voice. He has a voice. He's able to speak like we see at the baptism of Jesus. But whenever God is manifested in the Old Testament, think about uh, Joshua, the, the general of the army of the Lord. I think that's Joshua chapter 5. Uh, think about Daniel and, and uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, this this one who looks like the Son of Man appearing. And in fact, throughout almost all of the Old Testament, there is this idea of the Son uh, kind of underlying Scripture. And, and whenever God appears, I, I think it's safe to say that that is a manifestation of Jesus. Uh, and, and I don't this might be something to almost close this discussion, but do you think that uh, the use of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit those are that is just how God would like to explain himself to us, but he is really just God, and he does these three uh roles. I don't want to get into uh, modalism, but is it <laughs> this is just God's explanation of what he is you in the shack, you in the shack so Stephen, I have no problems calling you out as a heretic on this podcast. I'll do it. Guide me to where I need to be. <laughs> Two of the three of the Trinity of Crouch are calling the other member of our Trinity a heretic. So uh, uh, there's no community of love here. Um, so I, I do want to answer that, Stephen. I think that's actually that's that's a big question. In fact, I was having a conversation with uh, a friend just like a couple weeks ago who's in seminary. Um, I think at, uh, at TCU. And um, really uh, bright guy um, and uh, godly guy. But uh, he was, um, we were having a discussion about um, the necessity of the Trinity. Do, do Christians even need the Trinity? I, I had asked that same question. Um, is it just useful as like historic Christianity? It's, it's kind of important. It's a tradition thing, but we may not... We don't really need that doctrine because it's not actually accurate, perhaps, like Stephen's suggesting, or maybe for other reasons. We don't need it. Um, and certainly people... not suggest that it wasn't accurate. I just said, is it just a way of explaining it? Well, kind no, of what no. your friend said. Is it needed? Well, yeah. I mean, by accurate, I'm saying, like, is it... It's accurate, but does it really get... It's just... Uh, it's, it's toning it down, I guess. Um, anyways, so regardless of uh, beef with the Trinity... Um, here's a couple responses to that. Um, one, I want to say, uh, it is, the Trinity is crucial for our understanding of God, um, to be able to say God is love. The Trinity is uh, crucial for that so that we don't have this cosmic narcissist. Um, the Trinity is also distinctive. 
within our faith. Uh, it is different than any other religion. Some people will point to Hinduism and say they have a trinity, but that is that is not true uh, in the slightest. That shows people who don't know Hinduism. Uh, people who know Hinduism, uh, practicers of, will also say, no, that is not like a real thing that we believe. Anyways, um, but also important is the, the Trinity has been for a long time, at, at the very beginning, by the church fathers, the first few centuries of the church, and then most recently in the modern church, it has been central doctrine to Christianity that Christians have said, this from this, all of our other beliefs flow. And specifically, they've said, we are no longer a monotheistic religion, which is a bold claim. We are no longer a monotheistic religion, but instead, Wait, what? we are a Trinitarian religion. We have, monotheism was how God revealed himself to the Jews, and he brought them beyond a polytheistic um, worldview. But he guided us even more directly to who he is in his core, in his very being. God is Trinitarian. God exists in three persons, unified. Um, and y'all can push back with that. I just want to say that is what the church has um, at the, in the early stage proclaimed and is what it, it, modern theologians are proclaiming. We are a Trinitarian faith. Okay, so is there... Let me just say, is there any value in looking at uh, John 3.16 where it says that he gave his... It's possessive that Jesus is his. Uh, how are we supposed to, is there any emphasis that we could uh, read into or that tells us more about the nature of the Trinity from Jesus being almost shown as possessive of God's? Or God possessive of Jesus, the Son. So let, let me go ahead and, and say something. I, I don't think that the church should claim to not be a monotheistic uh, religion and Daniel, perhaps you weren't going as far as to say this, but I think that that's one area of unity that we have with Jews that we that we have with all monotheistic religions. Just the acknowledgement that there is one God. In fact, uh, if we are Christians who take the Old Testament seriously, then the Shema says that uh, the Lord is God. The Lord is one. And we cannot escape that. While we are better able to describe the Godhead, at the, the singular Godhead, as a Trinitarian Godhead, um, it does not lose its oneness. So um, I was citing, or I was quoting uh, Moltmann, a uh, famous theologian. He, he has made that sort of drastic claim. Um, but I, I, you, for me, well, he can get his own podcast. <laughs> um, I, I am inclined to agree with you, and instead say you you can kind of defend what Moltmann's saying, but more specifically, you might describe it as saying Trinitarianism is a subset of monotheism. So we are no longer just general monotheistic. So we are specifically Trinitarians. Um, he may have been going further with his. I, I can't say. But no, I, I agree, Michael. I think maybe it's best to describe it as a sub-belief that is, is different, but within the broader scope that is similar to Judaism and Islam, and it um, Sikhs and whoever else. Let me go ahead and ask 
uh, a kind of a different question. We don't have too much more time left, but I wanted us to ask some other questions uh, that we might have and, you know, quick, quick questions, quick answers, that sort of thing. Um, let me first ask my other two brothers, uh, do you believe, yes or no, that Jesus could have sinned? Yes. Yes. Okay. So if Jesus had sinned, which he didn't, so we don't, this is a question we don't really have to worry about, but for fun, um, would Jesus have continued to be a member of the Godhead had he sinned? I'll say yes. Uh, it's a hypothetical. Uh, okay. Yes, it's completely um, hypothetical. Or what would have happened if Jesus would have sinned is really my question. The world would have imploded? That sin would have then become the standard for good living and would immediately no longer be a sin. Uh, that's the same question as, is God still God if he sins? Uh, yes, san- yes, yeah. Well, so God, God the Father is incapable of sinning. Would y'all agree with me there? And for that matter, God the Spirit. Yes. So only the Son took on the took on the abilities of man to be able to sin, uh, yet lived without sin. Okay, so we have we have the account of the temptations of Jesus. There be no, it would make no sense to have uh, temptations if they couldn't right. have possibly been acted upon. Right. It's not a temptation if you can't do it. There are pl- lots of I Protestant Christians who you, disagree, but I can't. <laughs> who who do claim that Jesus cannot have sinned. I've never fully understood that, and I think they have a faulty definition of temptation. But Michael, I, where are you going with this? So I I just want to point out to our listeners that um, it is important to remember that Jesus, as a member of the Godhead, could have sinned. That he really did go through what people went through. Um, Because if you don't believe that, if you don't believe that Jesus was really tempted, that something substantial was happening by the incarnation of God, that that really was the radical moment of history that defines everything that we do. I was going to say that also plays a role in uh, the debate about the nature of mankind as well. Might want you to expand on that in a second, but but what I'm saying is that if Jesus had not been able to sin, then his sacrifice on the cross doesn't nearly mean as much because it was not he was not living the same life that we could. What he what did living without sin would not be impressive if he had not given up the God uh, the God nature of not being able to sin and taken on that of man. I completely agree, and for that reason, next week's next week's podcast needs to be Christology, and then the week after needs to be Atonement Theories. Sure. Well, all of this has been a very good discussion. I'm looking forward to our next discussion on Christology, and then following conversations on Atonement. That's it for today. We'll have a brand new episode for you next week. Check out our blog at religionandstory.wordpress.com, and leave us your feedback. See you next time.